Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast. This week, our guest is Jacob Hawley, the stand-up comedian. When Jacob isn't performing live sets, he's the host of the Jacob Hawley on Drugs, Jacob Hawley on Love, and Jacob Hawley Job Centre podcast on BBC Sounds, and is the host of the Radio 4 show, Class Act on iPlayer. Today, Jacob tells his story from Stevenage to stand-up, how to start in comedy, how comedians measure their success, how working class is represented in comedy, how content creators are shifting the dial on the archetype of white working class men, and we even get to hear Jacob's worst stand-up horror story. A quick disclaimer, a virtual room of a Scotsman and a comedian leads to explicit language throughout this conversation. That aside, I really hope you enjoy this episode full of gags. Please follow Jacob Holly on Instagram, at Jacob Holly, and share this episode if you enjoyed it on your social media accounts. It would make my everyday. But for now, Jacob Holly. Jacob Holly, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you? Thanks for having me, bro. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. When's your daughter's birthday? Is it past or is it coming up? It's cut. So my my daughter will turn one on the 9th of August. So that's about three weeks from now. Oh, mate! Um, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. I I keep forgetting it. I keep <laughs> I um my partner. I was talking to my partner the other day, and I was like, oh, I've got this exciting thing that's just coming for. Uh, this this little show that I'm doing I was like yeah it's gonna be on the 9th of August and she was like no it's fucking not and I was like oh it's <laughs> <laughs> like the first first time I've um first time you know I've had a daughter that's got a birthday so I'm like fucking hell like um so yeah man three three weeks time it'll be a year which is nuts I mean it depends if your content's over 18 or not I mean if if it isn't over 18 content, then she could come along for a first birthday party. No, she, this is, I've got higher hopes for her than coming to my gigs. You hope she has better, more exquisite taste than that? I, I, I hope she can have more refined taste than my comedy. Um, well, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Mate, it's a pleasure. I stumbled, essentially stumbled across your gig last week. Um, it, was a couple you, you, it was an Ed Gamble and acquaintances gig. Yeah. Um, were you going because you knew Ed? No. Nope. Or, or you knew Ashley B? Or nope. <laughs> the reason I stumbled across it were two half-cut Scottish men in Soho looking for somewhere to go for a drink, and we heard this kind of blaring, like bassy noise. So we followed it, like um, really, like, yeah, like pirates to an X on a map. We followed this bassy noise, and it took us to this place called Twenty One Soho, and there was a bouncer yeah. outside, and we asked. We asked the bouncer, oh, what kind of club night's on inside? And he replied, it's a comedy night. We're like, what? And then he replied, yeah, it's Ed Gamble. And then I, I recognised Ed's name from uh, Mock the Week. Yeah, and yeah, we're yeah. like, is, is it on? Can we get in? And he's like, yeah, just pay a tenner at the door. I really, oh, wow. So, so you, mate, well, I mean, it's so, it's so, that's so funny that we're, it's so chance that we have, we're having this conversation. because I wasn't actually supposed to be performing on that bill. <laughs> That's that's so funny. I, I so it's um Ed Ed is with the same management as me, and um this is quite funny actually. So the reason I was actually performing on that bill is because um there's a there's a producer that wants to see me do a specific ten minute set because they're considering using me for a TV show, and so they were like, right, stick him on. Uh, you know, Ed's doing a show on Monday. I, I've met Ed a couple of times. They were like, Ed, you know, put Jacob on Ed's show. We'll get the producer along. And the, the funny thing is, I, I um. You, you might you might remember that uh, the, there's not really any signal inside that venue. Can't get on the internet or anything. And it was only when I got off stage that I got te- I'd seen I had a text from my agent being like, because it, it was mad rain, wasn't it? The rain was insane yeah, yeah. that night. 
uh, I got a text from my agent being like, I'm really sorry, uh, Adam, the producer couldn't make it because his flat's flooded. So, <laughs> so I, I only got added to that bill maybe on the Monday. Um, oh, and then, and then <laughs> I got, you know, as, as I got off stage, I got this text being like, right, Adam wasn't there anyway. So it's a bit of a wasted night. Also, I was running late. I ended up parking my car in some fucking multi-story in Soho that cost me 30 quid for three hours. So, so this, this, this podcast and this conversation is the only thing that came out of that night. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, so it's a real, real coincidence that we ended up meeting, well, not meeting, but you know what I mean? Like encountering each other. And you make that out. seem like it's a good thing, mate. That's almost like going into Tesco to find the reduced aisle, to find nothing, to leave with COVID. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm hoping it's going to be short COVID rather than long COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but me, I, I really enjoyed your set. I felt really compelled to your story. Um, hearing some of the, the facets of it, especially the content around mental health and working class, it was like hearing my own story played back in a comedic sense. Thank I you. Love, I would love to hear your story. Like, where did it begin? Like, what were you like as a child? Fucking hell. <laughs> you're like the ACAST Freud it's like, <laughs> sit down and um, what was I like? I think I was a very normal kid to be honest with you I, I, I think most comedians um, like tend to have been the kind of class clown um, and I think I probably fitted into that a little bit but I, I grew up had a very loving family and my mum my and dad were together um, and a lot of my friends parents weren't um, my, my, my dad, uh, when I was born, worked in a power station, but he's carpenter, he trained as a carpenter, um, and he sort of worked a variety of jobs, and the most recent job he was doing was working with cars and the mechanics of cars and the parts that went to cars. My mum sort of did every job you could do without having any qualifications. When I was born, she worked in a bra factory. Um, she sort of she I think I think because she sort of didn't like us going to school she ended up working at the school as a, as a dinner lady first of all and then worked as a cleaner and shit like that so they, they're very very like loving for parents and and I sort of talk about class on stage from the perspective of someone who grew up in a working class background but I'm very conscientious of like I I didn't I didn't we you know we 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 lived in a terrace house, but we had a mortgage on it. We, we weren't, it wasn't a council property, you know, we weren't in an estate or anything like, well, we were on an estate, but it wasn't like flats or anything. Um, I never felt, I think, I think one thing that my parents did a very good job of is if, if we were poor, me and my sister never really realised it. Like we didn't. And I think part of that is the area that I grew up in. No, no one that, you know, that every now and then I'd be like, why are they going to Disney and we're not? And every, and I, I don't know about, did you play football when you were younger? Yeah, we did. Yeah, do you, I don't know if you remember. I I, I love football boots, and I, st I still do quite like football boots. But then, with football boots, there's like a back then anyway. It's like twenty years ago. There was like almost like a tier system of like the proper ones would be like one hundred and twenty quid, and they'd be the ones that the footballers wear. Then there'd be like a slightly cheaper one at seventy quid, and then there'd be like the cheap cheap versions that are thirty quid. And I always had those ones, and I never, again, just just didn't really understand why I had those and other people didn't, but. I don't, I don't, I never woke up one morning and thought my parents are broke. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know how that relates to your story, but I, I've, I never, I was aware that everything in our lives was sort of cheaper stuff and the food was always own brand and blah, blah, blah. But I never felt like there were limits upon, but I knew I couldn't ask for certain things, but I never felt poor. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? 
No, I, I completely agree with that. I resonate with that, especially in the sense of um, I completely relate to the the football bit story because yeah, I, I had the Adidas F10s when my peers yeah, had the F10. F10. Right, F10. That's a great example. So, so the ones the footballers had were called F50s. Then there were F30s, which were like the middle range, and then F10s were the cheap ones. Trust me, if my dad could get an F0, he would have. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any F5s? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Right? But on the, the topic of the own brand, um, food, I remember begging my parents week on week when they did the food shop to get like branded crisps, like walkers yeah. or something, instead, yeah, of the, yeah, yeah. instead of the polystyrene shaped um, as the smart praise cheesy puffs. Yeah. I wanted walkers because taking those to school would be like a simulacrum. It would be like virtue signaling that everything's okay at home like I'm I'm one of you it, it, it was to not stand out it's, it's yeah. weird that, that I use crisps as a mechanism to like buy uh, coca-cola as well I, I I remember going to school with Safeway cola and like that again that's like a signifier of like it's like one, one of my mates now I phoned one of my mates the other day and I got through to his voicemail it was the gift gaff voicemail <laughs> and I had to meet up with him and be like are you all right like do you need help or something <laughs> <laughs> I've actually, I shouldn't see, I've actually, I've just done a, a commercial for Gift Gaff. I'm, I'm the voice of Gift Gaff on Capital Radio at the moment, so I shouldn't slag them off, but I am, um, no, I, I, I am, um, yeah, we, we've, it was interesting, they signified, but again, it's like, it's not, um, I, I don't, I don't, I never want to sound self-pitying with it. That's, that's a big thing for me. I never want to sound self-pitying because A, my parents did a very good job of like raising us and looking after us and making us feel, and also like, I think some people feel a kind of glass ceiling in terms of what they can achieve when they get older. And part of that is what the world puts on you. But I think for some people, that's what their parents put on them. Whereas I, I, my, my parents were very good at not doing that. And I think part of that is I wanted to be a comedian. I've wanted to be a comedian since I was about 11. Um, and, you know, it's funny around other comedians, a lot of, I, when I first started as a comic, there's a lot of people at these open mic gigs going, oh, I'm trying to be a comedian. My parents are going to be so disappointed that I'm not a doctor <laughs> or a lawyer. And I'm still there like, my parents never had those hopes for me. Like, this is much better than the alternative. Um, but yeah, they, they, they were very good at that. But I, I don't, the other thing, I don't know if you find this, but my, um, I've sort of got two sets of friends now. I've got friends that I grew up around that I went to school with and friends that are more kind of London based and some are in comedy and blah, blah, blah. Um, those those London-based friends are all like, yeah, you're very working class. You're you're the working class guy, blah blah. Whereas my friends from home, they like cringe when they see me described as a working class comedian because they're like, oh fuck off. We're not, you know, we they 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 don't see themselves as that. Even though they all work in construction, you know, they, they've got all the signifiers of being working class. They grew up in the same place as me, went to the same state school that I did, like had all the shit I did. They really they don't see themselves that way and they don't think about it like that and even if they are they're like yeah but don't talk about it it's it's just it's so interesting how i i almost i i think like middle class and upper middle class people really fetishize the idea of being working class and it's so interesting that you interviewed the reebok guy because i think reebok and slazenger and you can see it in fashion like you know streetwear quote unquote is so big now and it's it's such a fetishization of working class culture but a very specific kind of working class culture you know I read or listened to something about fashion within class and it basically describes why Kim Kardashian can wear joggers and heels to a show because mm. she is so removed from she's so removed from that kind of class of streetwear. She's maybe like three or four social 
stratas above that. But if she yeah. was only one above that, then people would question whether she belongs there. Yes. But because she's yeah. so far removed from that, she can wear that. It's a choice. It's obviously a choice. It's not. It's not that's all she can afford. It, did you? See, I don't know if if you know a musician called Jessie Ware. No. Um, she went to a. Uh, she, I, she, she's like she's one of those who like you'll hear like a dance song and you won't know who the fuck it is or what it's called but you'll know the song and she'll be the one singing it right like oh mm, 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 yeah and that's her going oh yeah so, so she she does that but anyway she she had this big thing a few a few months ago where she um she went to this really fancy restaurant in london but she went in like a north face and fucking like and and she was trying to do that but where she's not quite kim kardashian level they didn't let her in and she made a real big thing of it being like, how dare you not let me in, you know, blah, blah, blah. You obviously don't want poor people in your restaurant. It's like, no, you're a platinum selling musician. You're going to a nice restaurant, put a fucking dress, put a shirt on. Do you know what I mean? That I, I hate that. And I think that's something that, um, again, it's a real signifier of being middle class, actually, is the privilege of being scruffy. And I've noticed it in comedy so much, like... The, the scruffy people are never the working class people. They're the middle class people who feel safe and comfortable enough that they can be scruffy, not have a shower, wear shit clothes. Even if I wear like a hoodie and joggers, they will be very carefully thought out hoodie and they'll be clean and they'll be ironed <laughs> and I'll have done my hair. And sh- Do you know what I mean? Like properly working class people are never scruffy, never, ever, ever scruffy because you always think like I'm, I'm moving up. I'm going somewhere where I've got to impress. And even if it's streetwear or whatever, it's the white trainers are immaculate, you know? Yeah. The, the, the t-shirt's been ironed. And so through my work, I work for a professional services organisation and I am the chair of our social mobility network. So okay. like I have like 360 plus members of staff as part of this network and I get to hear their stories all the time. And that's something that really resonates with uh, the community. Um, the, 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 big, the biggest problem in social mobility, I believe, is concealment. So... As part of that, people from a lower class background polish themselves up, especially in an organization like that. And you would never be able to tell they're from a lower class background because yeah. they have some sort of inner belief that they don't want to get caught out. So if they yeah. were scruffy, they would get caught out, especially within an organization like that. They believe mm. it's their one chance at professionalism. And if they were to come in one day a bit scruffy, then yeah, someone could point the finger and that's 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 them done. That's the inner belief they have. And it's funny hearing that transgress from like my world of work to your world of work. Yeah, fully. But, but it works the other way as well. It, I, I do believe that that's the thing. If, if you're privileged enough, if you're confident enough, that you go, it doesn't matter what I look like, what I smell like, what my clothes look like, I can turn up however. And they're yeah. the ones who look scruffy. I, I can fucking guarantee you walk into any room, the scruffiest people will be the people from the most privileged, comfortable background. It's, it's almost like... people will be the opposite. It's almost like the most disgusting takeaway does the best kebab. Always, <laughs> always, always the way, always the way. It's it's never it's never the best looking places. It's, but, but yeah, man, that's, that's I don't know how I got into talking about that, but that's um, but yeah. In terms of my story, yeah. So I, I uh, like uh, you know a, a a very a ground like a, a background of kind of it was limited, but it was comfortable at the same time. And my, my parents worked very hard to make sure me and my sister never went without, and then. I was the first person in my family to ever gone to university. Um, I, I very nearly didn't go to university because when, when I was 18, I went on a lad's holiday to Falaraki and I, um, I fell in love with a girl out there. And so uh, me and my mate basically just stayed in Falaraki for the summer, formed a band. We performed in this bar all summer and didn't come back. 
So I didn't go to uni when I was supposed to. And then I did that again the next time. But then I did go to university after that. And that kind of, the, the sort of, the winter between those two summers where I was back in Stevenage where I grew up, um, not a university, didn't really know what I was doing in my life and just trying to do shit jobs to get by. I think that that really kind of transformed the way I think and the person I am because that kind of taught me like, this could be my life if if I don't chase my dreams, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, if I don't try and become a comedian and try and do the things that I've done now, it would have been that. It would have been scrabbling around jobs I don't like, you know, <clears throat> getting pissed and getting fucked every weekend just for something to do out of boredom. And that, that would have gone on forever. And I think that really sort of gave me a kick up the arse and made me go, right, you know, do something. And my dad always says that to me. He was like, he's like, that's the most depressed I've ever seen you. But he was like, I think that's the most important lesson you've ever learned. Because I was one of those annoying kids at school where I was like, sort of smart enough to get by without trying, you know, and thus I was, I was fucking about all the time. I was distracting other people, trying to be funny. Like I, I must have been, I, I think it must be the most annoying kind of kid to teach because there's almost an arrogance there of like, you know, they can do the homework in the last 10 minutes and it will be fine enough to not get in trouble and blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, don't have to listen for the lesson, but can just back get by on the test and that. So I've never really like applied myself properly, but I think that, um, that little year of you know my it's quite funny like I I you could just about call it a gap year but rather than <laughs> traveling around Thailand I was working bar jobs and doing cocaine in Stevenage but um but that that, that ironically I did find myself and I did I did kind of I didn't find myself but I found like what, what myself could be if I didn't buckle down and work so I went to university it was a shit university but um I, I specifically chose the university and the course because I had one module on stand-up comedy. Um, it was a three-year course on theatre arts. I don't, I, I don't like theatre. I couldn't care less about theatre arts. I spent two and a half years, you know, <laughs> like, like not listening while they were teaching us stuff about costumes and stage directions <laughs> and shit. <coughs> Biding my time until... And I should say, actually, I wasn't just fucking about... I, I set up a comedy society at the university booked comedians to come and perform and watch them and, and spent a lot. The other reason I chose the university of course was because it was in London. So I could get around London and see comedy and, and understand it and learn about it. And then, you yeah, know, the last six months of the degree, I, I did a module on stand up, started performing in 2014 as soon as I finished and, you know, eventually, eventually made a job out of it. To get to that performance part. Like, I, I don't know how the industry works in comedy. Like for me, my conception may, is, may as well be like, it's like football, you get scouted at pro youth and then one day you wake up and you're playing pro. Is yeah, that the same for comedy? It's, it's kind of like that. So, so, you know, there's these, what you sort of call like entry level gigs, which are like open mic gigs. And so they'll be in like a room above a pub or below a pub and there'll be like 12 very new comedians doing like five minutes each. And, you know, there'll be like a handful of audience members if that. Um, and you sort of graduate from that to then like comedy clubs, like what you saw, 21 Soho they'll sometimes have a night where they let a couple of new acts on and they'll be the better ones from that. And then there's competitions for new comedians. And I was, I was in one of those, I was in the the BBC new comedy awards um, in 2017. And that was sort of very much, you know, in terms of like the scouting that you mentioned, that's how I got an agent. Um, And then that kind of progressed me from there. So, so it is kind of like that. You, You sort of, you have to eat shit for a bit. You have to do like a couple of years of like unpaid, 
traveling around just to get stage time anywhere you can as you improve and you try and learn the craft and build and and then yeah then then if if you you know there, there's there's it's, it's very interesting in comedy at the moment because there's there's a lot of sort of like <laughs> bitter unhappy people who don't like the success of others um and uh, you know you, you i don't know if you know a guy called andrew lawrence who was kicked off of twitter last week because he put a racist tweet um after england lost to italy in the penalties he put something about how the black players missed penalties and the, the white players didn't and it's like what fucking insane like if like if you're racist fair enough but pick your fucking scenarios. Do you know that <laughs> don't football is not a fertile ground to, <laughs> to point out black players being worse than white players. It's like football is is based around multiculturalism and people from different areas. And like any, anyway, he he's a good example. Of, he's 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 had a history of this. Andrew Lawrence of, of going, oh look, all the women are getting on TV, all the black people are getting on TV. Why can't I get on TV anymore? Comedy is a meritocracy, like it genuinely is. I've, I've been in it for seven years now and I can hand on heart say the best people do rise to the top. And it's very interesting to talk about class and that sort of stuff now because much more recently, and I think I might have mentioned this on stage, now, nowadays people are saying, oh, we want more working class voices. And that's having a very interesting effect on comedy because you're suddenly seeing a lot of people who've never spoken about that before go, oh, I'm working class. Did, you, did I mention I'm working? It's like, really? You don't? It seems to be working clearly. You know, you've never you've never signified that in the past. Like my uncle had a paper in when he was 13. I don't think that's a hmm. an entry requirement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's so funny though, because I think some of the people that I see in Cody now who are kind of raising their hand and going, Yeah, I'm I'm working class. It's so funny the kind of signifiers that they're using for that. Like although what I've sort of spoken about earlier, I don't think finance is necessarily a, a signifier of class. Like nowadays, I, I some of the some of the people I know who've got the most money in their bank accounts are people that I grew up with who went straight into construction after school, who've now worked in construction 10 years, they've got a mortgage, they've got a car, and they're, they're building something. Whereas the people with the, you know, the fucking empty bank accounts with moths flying around them, they're, they're, they're the people who went to good universities, were privileged enough to be skinned for 10 years while they chased their dreams. And it's, I, I, you know, it's, it's very, I, there's, you know, certain comedians who are like, yeah, well, I've worked in a supermarket for five years, so I'm obviously working class. It's like, that's not the same thing. <laughs> that's just not being able to get a job. Like, that's not, that doesn't make you working class. That's, that's just, that's that's a comment. Upon, you know, I, I know I know people who've been to fucking Oxford who who work in Sainsbury's. Like, it's, but it's very, I think it's really interesting now that that's kind of, also, and then another, another, Thing that I think people misunderstand with class sometimes or, or maybe people don't consider enough is I really think people's idea of what working class is is a very whitewashed idea of working class like we were we were talking about um fashion thing earlier yep. and you go yeah working class is very fashionable at the moment it's like mm, certain parts of work you know <laughs> sovereign rings are, are fashionable and blah, 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 but it's like I read, um, coming back to the football, I read, I read Raheem Sterling wrote something on the Players' Tribune about his upbringing. And it's like, you know, my mum worked in service stations and we would eat out of the vending machines. And it's like, well, that's, that's a very working class upbringing, but it's rarely spoken about because they're black. And, you know, I've got friends who are Asian who are very working class, but it's not quite the same story. And it doesn't have the same kind of social cash as, as, as white working class stories. And I think that's something that people should consider slightly more. Wow, that's interesting. I've never reflected on that before. I want to go back to the meritocracy part. 
where you said meritocracy and comedy exists. I'm curious to know, like within an organization, there's like a set hierarchy of like junior management. Like how is there a, almost like a social hierarchy within comedy? Like how do you gauge success? Well, that, see, and I think that's one of the really beautiful things about comedy is, is it's so hard to do so and it's not linear, you know? You came to um, a show where I was on, Ashley B was on and Ed Gamble was on. And I think in that scenario, there's certainly a, uh, there's certainly a hierarchy where I'm on the bottom and those two are further above me. <laughs> but, you know, those two are a great example. Who, who's the more successful out of Ashley B and Ed Gamble? As, as you mentioned, Ed Gamble's on Mock the Week every week. Like, you know, he's, he's got maybe the most successful podcast in the UK, the one he does with Acast to the off-menu podcast. Um, Ashling has got her second series of a sitcom that's getting shown in America with Sharon Horgan. It's just had five stars from The Guardian saying it's literally like magic. So which one's... But, and, and I think that's wonderful. I, I, and that's one thing that I think is such a lovely thing about the industry is like, you know, I'll be on a car journey with another comic. We'll be driving to a gig together. And I might say to them, oh, man, you've just done this thing on TV. That's fucking sick. I wish I got to do that. I wish I could have had a spot on that show. And then they can turn around and go, yeah, but you did that podcast series on BBC Sounds and that won an award. And I wish I'd done that. And go, but that person got this other thing. And we wish it. And it's like, it's it's so unlinear. You know, it's it's just a spread of like someone gets this, but then someone else gets that. And that's not quite as good as this, but then they got that. And I got to, you know, and it's so, and I think it, it can drive you insane that. It can drive you mental because you don't know where you are. And you're mm-hmm. like, am I doing all right? Am I not doing all right? Am I, and and so the, I guess the kind of is a hierarchy, but at the same time, it's, it's not a clear linear thing. You know, my, my girlfriend works in the NHS and they've got a pay grade system, which makes it very clear. You know who's where. You know she's a grade. She's a grade five. Someone who's a grade six is above her. Someone who's a grade four is below her. And I think one of the mad but beautiful things about comedy is there's n- there isn't any of that. It's very very intangible. It's very subjective, and it's it's what it's it's why whenever I do the Edinburgh uh, Edinburgh Fringe, I go to the gym every day because that's where the whole intangible nature of it and the results are so subjective and cloudy and difficult to distinguish that it starts to drive me insane. And so I need something that's very clear and numeric where I know that I'm doing better than the day before. Do you okay. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, do, I'll, I'll do like five, six gigs a day in Edinburgh. And how do I know which one was better than the last? You know, someone laughed a bit more, but then that, maybe that's because the room was better or it was not as hot. And then someone laughed at that one, but they laughed at a different joke to the day before. And I don't know if I told it differently. Am I doing well? Am I doing badly? Who fucking knows? At the gym, I know if I lift something 12 times and I only did it 10 times yesterday, that it's clear, it's numeric, and it's, it's, it's flat. Do you know what I mean? So I think with comedy, that's, it's the beautiful thing about it, but it's the frustrating thing, is that it's not linear. That's fascinating. Like, it's so fascinating that you can't play comedy top trumps with your mates. No, well, I think I think I think some people make the mistake of trying to do so, but I think it's a much nicer life to, to not do that. <laughs> so you must rely on like self-validation a lot. So the gigs that you perform and the sets that you do, that must you must define success by how important those sets and gigs are on your own personal journey. So you if, if, you, if your goal was to play at the fringe and you played at the fringe, then that would be a measure of success. Whereas if 
you wanted to avoid Soho because Soho has this reputation of, I don't know, I'm just making this up. If, yeah, if Soho yeah. had a certain reputation and you performed there, then you could be like, well, I'm not doing so great. Like, yeah. has there been any specific moments in your career where you've thought, wow, this, I can't believe I'm performing here. I can't believe I'm at this level yet. Um, there, there was, it was like 10 days before lockdown. I, um, I had a mad night. I, I, uh, there was there's a thing called the Aria Awards, the Radio Academy Awards, which were at the London Palladium, and I, I was I had that, and then I had one. I was doing like a kind of tour show at the Soho Theatre, and I've always wanted to perform at the Soho Theatre, and getting booked there was like a dream. And um, I, I went to the London Palladium, won an award, and then ran across town in my suit, got changed into the clothes that I wear for my Soho Theatre show. And they did a Soho theatre show to a sold-out room. Uh, Katie, Katie Price came to the, oh, to the no gig way. Uh, with Paul Denan, um, which, which I, I should say is not a signifier of success to me, but I just found it quite funny. <laughs> um, but, she, but that felt like that was that was like a night where it was like, okay, things things are happening that I want to happen. Do you know what I mean? But I talk to comics about this all the time about like. What, how you do gauge your success. And the, the thing is, it, it is just so, it's so, I think you put, you hit the nail on the head there about self, about gaining success from yourself. And one thing that I think all of us would agree is one of the real little small wins that you get to feel the best is when you've got a new idea, like a new joke or something, a new punchline, you write it down in the daytime and you could go and perform it to 10 people in one of those gigs like a room of other pub and if that works that is that is as good a feeling as like winning an award or selling out a room because that that is that's that is removing external gratification that is that's purely i did that i wrote that i thought of that i'm i've gone out tonight to test that and that has worked and that is as close as you'll get to go into the gym and go and right, put two more plates on either side of that bar, and I'm going to see if I can lift it, and then, and then you lift it. That's as close as you get to that, and so that is like again, in terms of something that you can give yourself a little win that you can grant yourself. That's that's as good as you can get. So, what's the process of writing a quality gag, and then how do you measure its success? Like I work, like I said, I work in finance, so like we'd have a KPI or a statistic or a visual graph or something mm-hmm. to measure that. How do you measure what's <laughs> funny, and then what's the process that goes in before that? It's, 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 meant, it's interesting you mentioned KPIs because it's uh, I actually really like stuff like that. I've 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 got I've worked in like sort of like business, not not anywhere near to your level, but like I've I've done stuff like that where there've been KPIs and there've been performance trackers and stuff like that. And and as you can probably hear from like what I'm saying, like I, I I wish there was more of that in comedy. I wish there was a graph I could set and go right. That's what I did last month. Am I hitting what I did last month? You know. This time last year, what were the numbers? Am I do you know? I I really wish there were more of that. But do, do you collect um, data like that, like in terms of like crowd size? Like, do you try like because of your mindset? Do you try and qu- like quantify your success by like crowd size or like square meters of the venue? Uh, the, I think the the only kind of thing you can do is if if you're if you're an act who tours every year, if you tour every single year and you tour to the same venues every year then you can say to yourself, right, I sold 50 tickets last year, this year I've sold 60. I, I'm not quite at that level yet where I'm doing that. Or, or Well, I was 
sort of starting to and then there was a pandemic so that kind of stopped uh, the, the only thing i've got now is when i do my <laughs> when i do my self-assessment when i do my tax <laughs> i can go right i earned this last year i've earned a bit more obviously things are better um and I, i've sort of been lucky enough that 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 at least financially has been the case of like it is on a sort of upward trajectory <laughs> rather than you know good year then a bad year then a good year then a bad year but in terms of the writing process again like unfortunately there, there isn't a graph you know in, in terms of my process it, it whether I say something funny to my mates or my mates say something funny to me or my girlfriend says something funny to me I'll take that away and make a note of it and then it's about coupling that with inserting that into things that I want to talk about so as as, as you saw I, I want to talk about um social class social mobility on stage I want to talk about mental health because they're things I care about and I think that that to me is very much the kind of comedian I want to be. I want to be someone who talks about things I care about. And one one of the real signifiers of success is when people like yourself can sort of message me or, or, or I can find out that that meant something to someone in the audience where they went, you know, uh, oh, I, saw, I saw Ed Gamble as well. And Ed Gamble was very funny talking about his cat shit in itself. But Jacob's set about, you know, working class people and their mental health meant something to me. And I'm like, bang, that's, I like that. That, and that, that is almost like a trump card that I have. Is if, if I can, you know, may, maybe Ed can make you laugh as much as I did. But if I if I'm talking about something that you care about, that that means something more to me. So <clears throat> it's it's all about marrying things that I just find funny and things that I make a note of that I'm like that's funny, and then going right. How do I insert that into a conversation about things I I give a shit about? And that's the kind of writing process. And then you know the the in terms of like collecting the data on whether it's working or not it's just about getting out and performing and performing and performing so if that feedback loop is important to you at the moment you're not at this level of like superstardom comedian like you're michael mcintyre mm. so you have quite you have a locus of control over your dms and i like because of your set i felt so emotionally evoked to send you a voice message to say jacob loved your set please 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 sh share your story on the podcast because it meant so much to me are you quite happy being at the level you are in terms of superstardom because you still have your fingertips on the feedback opposed to someone like Michael McIntyre is probably so far removed from their fans? Yeah, I guess, yeah, I, I do. I think people, and I've had this in, in Edinburgh and when I've done podcasts, that people do kind of feel they can message me and they can shoot me a DM and say, I liked that, that meant something, blah, blah, blah. That, you know, that, it also means that when people don't like it, I, 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 I'm invisible. <laughs> But I do, I do quite like that. Like I, I had, um, I went to England, Germany a couple of weeks ago, um, and my neighbour, strangely enough, a guy who lives in the same building as me, uh, do, do, have you ever watched Green Street? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know Bother? Yeah, yeah. So Bother is my mate. He's one of my best friends. The actor he plays Bother, a guy no called Leo, um, and he's become my best friend because he lives in this building, and we we met during lockdown we basically spent the whole of lockdown just drinking together we've now written like a little sitcom teaser together and and put that out and stuff and so I, I went to England Germany with him and a few of his mates and I swear on my life he must have done over 100 photographs that day I swear on my life the amount and it's not people going oh mate I love your work can you can you can you do a photo with me and my friends it's it's fucking idiots go bother fucking grab him by the fucking jacket pull him over spill bit come on bother get fucking bother <laughs> and I, I was watching that going i cannot think of anything worse i, I don't 
the amount of times I pulled him over and I was like, mate, I don't know how you do this. I don't know how you cope with that. And, and his, you know, uh, we were with his friends and his friends were sort of going, all right, so you're a comedian, I've not really heard of you. What do you, you, what do, you do? But like, you know, nice, but sort of being like, well, he's Hollywood star, who are you? Mm. And there was one moment in the day where one guy came up to me outside Wembley and went, are you Jacob Hawley? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, oh, listen to your on drugs podcast. I love it. I, I had a, I've had a bit of a thing with drugs myself and blah, blah, blah. And it really blah, blah, blah. Here you go, mate, have a, have a can of beer. And I was like, that is what I want. <laughs> I want I want one person to have a, have a conversation and talk to me about the stuff that I care about because they care about it too. And then they give me a beer. And that, that's lovely. I don't want hundreds of people jumping on me and taking photographs of me. And then, and I remember his mates being like, that look, Leo's mates being like, that looks nicer than what Leo has to do. <laughs> yeah. Even reflecting on that, like I get wonderful messages on this podcast a lot of the time. Just yeah. I had one female send me numerous voice notes in tears because she had listened to one of my podcasts. In fact, it was with Tony Kent, who you have performed with before. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So someone listened to that podcast and sent me like a three-minute voice note of them crying, sobbing down the high street because their stories were so aligned. And wow. at that one moment, I felt so rich, more rich yeah. than Bova, Bova probably feels yeah. because he's, yeah. a, he's a living meme. Whereas he, he, But I, I will say he gets a lot of that as well. And he, he gets a lot of, and I think, I think that's a really interesting thing, talking about class and social mobility is, and the mental health thing, Leo gets a lot of people who go, oh, mate, I, I've watched Green Street a hundred times, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, watching you as an actor inspires me so much. Watching those films is the only thing that keeps me going. You, you, I, I know what you mean. And like the kind of conversations we're having, and I guess, the, you know, the, the content that we make, is a lot more earnest and a lot more sincere and we're talking about things we care about and so it's easier for people to go i relate to that that i've just heard you talk about thank you for sharing that whereas his work let's face it it's films about people kicking the shit out of each other that is how a lot of working class people feel kinship they relate to that you know, it gets people going, mate, I'm just a fucking angry bloke and all I want to do is have a tear up at the weekend, but watching you and watching, because he'll, he'll show himself on his stories not living that life. And I think I think people watching him and going, oh, you're an actor. Oh, you can be a bit of a geezer, but not spend every day wanting to have a fucking tear up with someone. Oh, you can write something earnest about your girlfriend or say, I, I really enjoy writing that that does also have an effect on people but that's bearing in mind providing that those people follow him on these platforms like i i'm a massive green street fan but i don't follow but mm. like to the point that i can't even remember what name you gave him his real name um leo yeah in my brain he's still bova um and i, think, I know what you mean about like a living meme and it's it is but i think the difference between me and you jacob right we present ourselves in the truest form so I'm David McIntosh in this podcast and you're Jacob Holly in yours. So when we receive praise or love, when we receive love, we are receiving the love. Whereas when he is out in the street and he's getting praised, it's the persona and the, it's the persona and the ego that's being praised. And it must be quite hard for him to realize that it's not actually him. Yeah, yeah, I, know, I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. I don't, I don't think it's quite as binary as that. I think... Firstly, I think as much as as much as me and you are trying to give our, our purest self into our content, I don't know about you, but I don't always achieve that. 
you know i i will listen back to a podcast i've done and gone i wish i'd said this i wish i'd said that but purely through the act of putting a microphone in front of myself and sitting in front of someone that I'm, I'm really admire or I'm really interested by, I, I don't always put across the version of myself I would want to, you know, and I listen back to an edit and I go, oh, I wish I'd said this, I wish I'd said that. And we're, we're all, you know, not to get too fucking Freud about it, but we're always performing to a certain extent. So, and with, with Leo, yes, he's play, he plays Bobber, who's a character who's part of a fictitious story. But that, that still relates to him. And that still relates to the person that he is. And also, as you mentioned with social media, you don't follow him, but nearly 100,000 people do. And they see, you know, again, it is a persona. What, what you put on in Instagram is a persona. It's not you in your truest form. But it's closer to him. And so, whereas <clears throat> I get what you mean about, you know, you, what you put out is David, what I put out is Jacob, whereas what he, a lot of what he's put out is a character. I think now with social media and also bear in mind that what we put out is still a select presentation of certain parts of our personalities. It's all on a spectrum and maybe we're slightly more towards one side than he is to the other playing characters. <clears throat> we, we, I think we're closer than we, we would have been years ago in, in that sense. Yeah, I mean, actually reflecting on that, you're, t- you're totally right. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. It, it, but it's, it's, I do get what you mean. And and I know, I know what you mean about when people message you and go, oh, mate, that really fucking struck a chord with me. That really, that meant something to me. But I, we, we're, you know, we're still building up our audiences and we're, you know, we're, the, those messages are coming in in, uh, in dribs and drabs, maybe more so for yourself. Or, but I've never had it to a point where it's overwhelming, whereas I think Leo has, um, you know, he, he can tell you his own story, but he, I've, we go to this, we go to the gym together and, and I've, I've seen him look at his phone and go, oh, for fuck's sake, this person who's been messaging me telling me they're depressed has just tried to take their own life and their mum has just messaged me to tell me that. Do you mind if I just quickly go and do a voice message? And that's coming through regularly. And I've, I've had, at the Edinburgh Fringe, I've, I've, um, I've had, uh, I've, I've spoken about mental health quite earnestly on stage and stuff that I've gone through. <clears throat> and I've had a lot of situations where I've just come on stage, I've done an hour and I've done an hour where I've spoken about some really personal things and <clears throat> I'm tired and I'm soaked in sweat because it's hot rooms in Edinburgh. And then I've just got someone who's watched that, who's really connected to it and who wants to sit down for half an hour and talk about their shit. And with all due respect and sympathies, I don't have the capacity to have that conversation at that point and I've got you know my agent who's just come to the show and wants to have a conversation about an opportunity or my girlfriend who's come to watch and I want to take her for a drink or you know a family member who's come to watch it or a friend who didn't know about some of the shit I've been through and wants to check I'm all right but then I've got an audience member who's gone I've just related to that I had exactly the same thing let's chat and you know it, whether you call us performers content providers or whatever Again, it, it makes me quite grateful that my my audience isn't that big at the moment because I've found that overwhelming in the past and I don't know how you do that on a larger scale. So I'm not sure if you're prepared for this yet, but how will you prepare yourself for that level? I know like David Schwimmer refuses to take photographs yeah. and talk to the public because they, they like Ross from Friends. He doesn't owe them anything else but that. Do you have like a kind of framework in your brain uh, as you progress and become uh, <clears throat> I, ha- I haven't i haven't sort of like set any kind of limitations and 
I've only had, you know, Touchwood, I've only had a couple of instances where I've had to sort of say to people, look, I think you're kind of investing slightly too much into this. You know, you're messaging me multiple times a day. I'm, I, I love performing to you. I love that you come to my shows, but I'm not there for that. Um, so far, I just, I just try and be polite and respond to people as I can and, and, and be grateful for the support that I get. But I've, I, I don't really know, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to be David Schwimmer. And I don't think it's ever going to get to that level. Um, I don't, you know, as I've grown older, I don't think I really want huge levels of fame or notoriety. Like I, I want people to appreciate my work. Um, but I, I don't know. I think, I, I think again, like coming back to what you said about if you talk about certain things that are quite um, personal and, and mean something to people, I think you have to be prepared for, for people to, to feel that this is a more intimate conversation because comedy is a conversation comedy at its purest form is a conversation that's usually quite one-sided where a performer speaks and an audience laughs in response right that is a conversation and it should feel like a conversation and a good performer will 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 make the audience feel like they are part of that conversation without them having to speak purely through non-verbal responses of laughter and (gasps) and and that the performer will make it feel like a conversation that I've, I really believe that that, that is comedy is purest form. And, and the, the same with this, the same with this kind of content, it should feel like a conversation that the audience is almost a part of without them having to say anything. Um, as, as you start to bring more personal things into that conversation, whether that be talking about your background, your social class, your, your mental health, your struggles, you have to be prepared for people to feel like that's a more intimate conversation then, you know? Yeah. You, you, you you have to prepare yourself for that. And like James Acaster, for example, he had to take himself off of social media and everything like that because the last tour he did, I think it's called like Cold Lasagna, Hate Myself 1999 or something. It was a really earnest show about the struggles he'd had. And be- because he was doing a really earnest show about the struggles he'd had, people in the audience going, I've had that, I feel like that. James has just told me he's had that so I can tell James I've got it. Mm. And he couldn't do it. He had so many people speaking to him after shows, contacting him on social media, you know, saying mad stuff. He couldn't do it. He had to just cut himself off. And so I haven't got anything planned for that, but I do understand that that might happen. And I understand why it might happen, because as you introduce these heavier topics into your work and your content, you have to understand that that is going to feel like a more intimate relationship with your audience. In a similar vein, through your podcast, um, Jacob Holly on Love and on Drugs, um, I've heard the ones on like the gig economy, contraception, porn, um, homelessness, and there's episodes that dig really deep into like quite distressing topics, like, mm. and but you you do approach it in such like a sensitive and genuine manner, but how much of the content from that where you're speaking about these topics? from those podcasts how much does that bleed into your then your comedy sets oh a lot a lot I, I really I really I think it would be such a wasted opportunity if it didn't you know I, I feel really privileged that I've been given the resources and the time to research topics in a way that is um thorough and interesting and I get to meet really interesting people and I think it'd be such a waste if I didn't then go and write about it and perform about it. And, and also that that's part of the reason that I choose the topics that I do, because I choose topics that not just am I interested in, but I think I've got a funny angle on. 
you know otherwise I don't think I'd be a very good presenter and so yeah it, it definitely bleeds in and, and <clears throat> you know ev everything that you'll have heard me do do a podcast on I will have had material on whether that's homeless people or pornography or all of that stuff yeah I, I always try and write about it because I just think I'm so lucky that you know I've been given a bit of time and a bit of money and, and help from a producer to really research these things and meet such fucking fascinating people that I just think how could how can you not write about it yeah similarly you were talking about you were given this opportunity to research um vastly different aspects yeah and different topics a lot of comedy seems to be on like current affairs like a lot of comedians present on the news or present on topics within the news I think there's like within work, the working class community there's a huge literature gap between working class and middle class people mm -hmm. do you think some people some people aspiring comedians free away from entering comedy because because of their their literacy yeah. skills they yeah, can't keep up with current affairs Possibly. I mean, I, I, I can't claim to be a good reader. I don't, I don't, I'm not, uh, I don't, I don't read a huge amount of books or anything like that, but I guess in terms of the research I do, it's, it's more speaking to people who have done the, re the reading. Um, but I definitely think that's the thing. And I definitely think satire especially has felt like a real quote unquote highbrow thing for a long, 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 long time. You know, you look at like, have I got news for you and TV shows like that. And it's, you know, privately educated people with posh accents talking about things they read in newspapers that I don't read. And so I really do think that's a, something, something that has kept not just working class people, but black people and Asian people, pe people who don't see themselves as, as white scholars from entering into that world. And, and I think a really fucking cheering thing. I don't know if you know a guy called Munya Chihuahua, who... I'm sure you've seen his sketches. He do, he does these sketches online that are satirical, um, you know, and it, it's 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 all the way from talking about Jamie Oliver making jerk chicken to Boris and Rishi Sunak. But he's such a good example of someone who's gone right. I want to be a satirist. I'm probably not going to get on. Have I got news for you? Because I don't look or sound like them. Fuck it. I've got a phone. I read the news. I've got an opinion. I'm just going to make something. Put it out there, and it fucking smashes. And it doesn't smash just with people who read The Guardian. It smashes with young people, you know, people from different ethnic minorities, people get, people engaging in topics they wouldn't have done previously because, you know, usually they don't relate to Ian Hislop or whoever's doing that episode of Have I Got News For You, but they relate to Munya. And so they'll read a bit more about Rishi Sunak. And so it works both ways. It's like, there are, also, there are people who don't engage in satire and don't, want to perform it because they think I'm not well read enough but there's also people who don't necessarily want to perform but they want to consume that media they want they want to laugh at Rishi and Boris and people like that but they, they don't read the Telegraph so like I don't know what they're doing but when they see someone like Minya Chihuahua making these videos and they go viral suddenly they learn a bit more about about what the government are doing and, and stuff like that so it's a really beautiful thing when someone like Minya will break through and and start doing stuff that people who look and sound like him haven't done before interestingly i didn't get the, t the time to send you like a briefing pack that i've got for the podcast because of how quick we turned this over mm. but if there's a mission statement almost within my document and essentially the reason this podcast exists jacob is because i consumed a lot of self-development um podcasts and they're always quite verbose and highbrow mm. 
Mm. And I thought someone typically from my background, lucky enough, I do a lot of reading and quite articulate. I can understand and digest this stuff, but typically people from my background don't. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and because it's fronted as this kind of verbose content, they don't even bother interacting with it. So I wanted to get these thought leaders such as yourself, the founder of Reebok and CEOs and rappers and bring them, bring their stories to light in the most digestible colloquial manner. And I feel like I've achieved that. And yeah. that kind of uh, resonates with the story you just told me there. But it's, it's so that that's, you know, I don't like the word content and I don't, you know, I, I, I often feel too old for all that shit. But like this, this, this is a good example of that, of like, New, new media is is opening the doors to to subjects and topics like what you discussed there by being accessible and that that's a really nice thing is is as much as you know i'll look at the internet i go oh god i don't want to start making fucking sketches online i don't want to start doing this but the, the beautiful thing about it is it's, it's bringing audiences to topics that, that they wouldn't have done before what comes to mind is like how you've pivoted through covid like, what changed for you in COVID? How did you start making content during COVID? Um, well, I so before before COVID hit, I was I'd been full time professional, just relying on comedy for my my money for about a year, a year and a bit. And so when when that pandemic hit, I shit myself because I was in trouble. I was in big 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 trouble I just moved into this flat which is a bit more expensive than where I lived previously I had a baby on the way and I didn't I didn't qualify for any of the government support um because um because I've only been self-employed for two years and you have to be self-employed for three years to get a self-employment support grant so I was fucked in a big way rent that I'd never had to pay before baby on the way only been you know, doing this for a couple of years, so there wasn't like money in the bank saved up. I was in trouble. But I'm I'm one of those people. Like I said at school, I I would write the essay an hour before the deadline. I need some. I need I need fear to really. And I, I really think that's something that um I hate talking about creative people, but I think creative people often underestimate just how important fear is. And it relates to the way I write. When it, when I write. I write a lot of my stuff when I'm actually on stage that because, because the, the fucking fight or flight response in my brain is throwing adrenaline through me. And so my brain works at hundred miles an hour. And so I could sit here and try and think of a new joke for an hour, but I'll have a cup of coffee. I'll fuck about on my phone. I'm too comfortable and I don't think of it. But if I'm on stage and I've just set the setup and I need the punchline, my brain has to do it, it has to, otherwise I'm, I'm dead. And so it was the same with COVID. Like I, I, I it hit, and I had like a, a day of just going, "What the fuck are we gonna do?" I'm in big, big, big trouble. And my girlfriend, because she's a midwife, she couldn't work because she was pregnant. And so, I mean, not that she would have been able to support us anyway, but it's not as if she could have just gone and done extra shifts because she's pregnant. And she couldn't go into the hospital because of COVID. And so it was almost like I had a deadline. I suddenly had a thing. It's like, right, at the end of this month, you're going to have to pay rent, and if you haven't done something to earn some money by then, you're fucked. And so I very quickly got two things commissioned, quicker than I've ever had anything commissioned. I had, I had the new podcast, which is the one you mentioned about the gig economy, um, Jacob Always Job Centre. Like, I phoned the producer that I'd worked with for on drugs, and I was like, mate, because he's freelance as well. So I was like, right, we're both fucked. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we turned around a treatment. Usually a treatment would take a month or two to get together. We did it in a day. We were just like, this has to be 
this has to be done. This has to be good enough for them to commission it tomorrow. And we have to do it. We turned it around in a day and we got it commissioned and we started making it straight away. Wow. And then I, um, I got a, a sitcom pilot commissioned. And again, usually you, you write up a kind of treatment, like a kind of few pages of ideas. And th this is the second time I've had one of these commissioned. And previously it had taken like a year to fuck around with the treatment and get it ready to then send to a channel and get a bit of money. We did it in like a month because because I had to. There was no there wasn't there wasn't the comfort of going. Oh yeah, look, this is what I've written up, mate. Um, you know, send it to the producer and go. Give me your thoughts next week. It was like right, we have to do this now because I need to get the money in the account now to, because I need to buy a pram and a cot and pay rent and I have to put food on the table and so. I survived it. I survived the pandemic. Didn't have to get a day job. Didn't have to go out and you know drive a Tesco delivery van or whatever I would have had to do. It wasn't easy. Like I, I, that is actually one. You know, I mentioned earlier that it's kind of been a nice progression in terms of money. But yeah, last year was very hard financially. That was you know had to be very fucking careful. But one thing I have really worked to do is to do what my dad did, which is I never let my partner or. I mean, my baby's young, but do you know what I mean? I, ne I never let my partner feel like she couldn't buy things, that we had to be careful with food, that we couldn't, you know, buy a bottle of wine at the weekend or whatever. I, I always wanted to make her feel that we were safe and provided for and, and comfortable because that's, that's what my parents did for me. And that's one thing I've tried to do is work hard enough that there's always powder. Do you know what I mean? I don't mean gear. I mean, do you know what I mean? A bit like... <laughs> Yeah, it, that, the last year has been the hardest of my life, but I think it's made me better at everything I do because I've had to. That's really admirable, mate. When we reflected on, like, top trumps, if you now look back at COVID and look how other comedians navigated COVID, for example, you had Andrew Schultz. Do you watch Andrew Schultz? I'm aware of Andrew Schultz. So he, does, he did those PowerPoints kind of mm. style Instagram videos that turned into a Netflix special. Mm -hmm. And we're in this some sort of age of productivity porn. If you were to look back on COVID, would you have changed the way you operated throughout it, based on the performances of other comics? Uh, other comics. I, I don't. I don't want to get into that kind of. The, the, it's 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 interesting. Andrew Schultz thinks it's bleeding into British comedy, and there's a few comics I know who've really taken on that right DIY approach. Just fucking make something. There's no excuse now. You've had no better time to, to be productive. Be productive now. You've got time. Do it. Just fucking do it. And if you don't do it, it's your fault. And I don't quite subscribe to that way of thinking. And I do I do also um, look at what the last year or so has probably done to my head. And there's been times that it's been too stressful and I, I haven't felt good with it, but I kind of had to. I, I, do, I do look back at the last year and I say, if I'd have had those self-employed, you know, self employment support grants and if I hadn't have had to go and make stuff I wouldn't have made what I had and I'm, I'm I'm glad that I did do that but I also I guess I'm somewhere in the middle in the sense that it would have also been nice not to have been quite as scared as I was and I think there were probably times when I was in a worse place than I should have been because I was so panicked about things and you know it's, it's as much as it's good to have a deadline and that kicks you into doing stuff <laughs> sometimes it's nice not to be kicked so I'm not quite on the kind of Andrew Schultz level of just fucking make something, fucking produce something, you know, now's your time, do it. I, I, I subscribe to the idea that, um, that everyone has their own speed of working and 
it's also not not the natural response to a global pandemic and hundreds of thousands of people dying every day to go right let's get funny you know <laughs> um but i do i do look back on the last year and i do think to myself like there are things i wouldn't have done at the speed and efficiency i did if i hadn't have felt quite as scared as i was so i'm i'm grateful for that to a certain extent definitely mate. so what does the day in the life of jacob look like now um I'm quite rigid with myself. I always make sure I do nine to five. So I have to be at my desk by nine o'clock. There's always something to do, whether it's, um, as I say, I've got two little like scripted things in development, like sort of sitcom things that have been paid for by channels to sort of develop. So there's work to do on those. There's, um, I'm turning the podcast into a TV thing at the moment. So there's, there's work to do on that. Um, I'm writing a new hour of comedy that I'm sort of preparing for next year. So there's work to do on that. There's, I do a bit of voice work. I do, I, you know, go on podcasts like this. Do There's always stuff, you know, and there's always a to-do list. And as there's that thing I'm doing with Leo that we're, we're turning into a sitcom as well, um, that we've been releasing online and filming and stuff. So there's always shit to do. So I, but I, I do have a very rigid, like I'm always at my desk nine to five. I also, I haven't really mentioned this, but I've, I run a business with my best mate. We've got two barbershops together. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that, that, that takes up a little bit of time as well. I, I'm, I'm more a kind of, not quite silent, but a very quiet partner in that. <laughs> that only takes up a few hours a week of like meetings and just checking the shops all good. Um, but yeah, it, it, there's always nine to five. There's sort of two or three gigs a week. And then, you know, I, tr- I try and spend as much time as I can with my daughter, my partner. Um, and you know maintain a bit of a social life as well but I'm I am quite rigid with that nine to five thing like I do I like being at my desk by nine I you know have an hour lunch break at one and then go again for the afternoon what do the fans not see I remember hearing on a podcast that you have to time your breath between gags like (laughs) like, what goes into that process that we don't see um I, I I've I've never been quite as precise as time on my breath but there is a lot of like you, you learn the best cadence of how to deliver the lines and stuff, but it's, it's, it's more, more kind of, I, I don't sit at home timing it or like practicing it in the mirror or anything like that. It's, there's just a lot of practice gigs. There's a lot of like, like today, for example, I'm going to go about five o'clock and do an hour of new jokes, at a, a venue called the top secret comedy club. And that'll be to like 50, 70 people, something like that, you know, slightly smaller. And I do a lot of that. I do a lot of like new material night or, do an hour preview and stuff like that just to kind of keep sharp um and develop new ideas so it's, it's mainly that to be honest with you for it for you know what what you saw that monday i was i thought i was performing to a tv producer so, <laughs> so it was it was kind of as sharp as i can do it whereas there will be nights like tonight where i'll do i'll do it and it'll be a bit more kind of woolly and a bit more like um a, a bit more spaced out and free for free flowing and and messy but it's it's mainly that to be honest with you but I, I i'm i'm not someone who stands in front of the mirror practicing and timing it and i as i said earlier like i write while i'm on stage you know i, I take a leap of faith say something where i don't know what the punchline is going to be and then make myself think of it on stage and that's 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 the kind of process for me and that, that's what works best that's crazy how do you navigate crowd work and do you have any um horror stories Oh man, I've got loads of horror stories. I've got loads of things where it's gone wrong or like I, I so my first gig back after the pandemic in May, um fucking awful. I was supporting Al Murray um in a show on the South Coast. I was driving from London, I gave myself like two hours for a four-hour journey 
took five hours because it was so fucking windy. It was that, I don't know if you'd remember there was a day in May where it was just so windy. There was trees falling down everywhere. I was late getting there. I was they had to start the show without me because I was so late. Um, I thought I was sort of there was two support acts and I thought that I was kind of emceeing it. I thought I was, you know, come on, do a bit of crowd work, introduce the next act, then say, right, that was the first act, we're going for an interval, then you've got Al Murray. So I, I'm, I didn't get to introduce the, the other act on stage and then I got there late, came on stage, just before going on stage, I said to the stage manager, I was like, right, so I'm going to go on and just say, right, that was Lauren and now we're having an interval. He was like, no, no, you're doing 25 minutes now. This is the first time I performed in six months. I hadn't looked at my notepad. I hadn't, I'd literally just run out of my car. I was still wearing my coat. Um, no way. Got on stage. Like, I was like, fuck, what am I going to do? I tried to do a bit of crowd work. Um, I saw a lady in the front row who, I don't know how I did this. I thought it was a little boy. She had quite a small, like, buzz cut haircut. I, I, I said, what's your name, sir? And she said, I'm a woman. It's misgendered someone. And then said, oh, well, look, it's good to be here in Kent. And then they went, you're not in Kent, you're in Suffolk. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, I just had to pull 25 minutes out of my ass. Um, no so that was like a horror story. Um, but then, but I, I think with crowd work, I, you know, it's what we were talking about earlier about like finding your authentic self, there, there are kind of two schools of thoughts with crowd work. There, there are some people who like literally script a list of jokes and go, right, if, if I speak to someone in the audience and they're a plumber, I've got this joke about plumbers. If I speak to someone who's a gardener, I've got this joke about gardeners, whatever, blah, blah, blah. That's one way of thinking. The other way of thinking is you go, if I really chisel away at my act and I know the persona that I'm doing on stage so well and I know where they're funny and I know what their status is and how they see themselves, then I know how they will respond organically to all these things, if that makes sense. And so I've kind of tried to do that and I've tried to really think about who I am when I'm on stage, what I things that I like, the things I dislike, you know, my status, what I think about my social class, whether I'm quite an arrogant person on stage, whether I'm quite a, a shy person on stage. And then by thinking about that, you've kind of got an organic response to everything. Does the crowd vary venue on venue or do you have to like vary your content? Oh, massively. Because massively. I, remember, I remember you asked in Soho uh, a question, you said, who in the audience is working class? And it was dead silent. And Boy, then I made I, I made out a sound that sounded like half, like the first half of a sneeze. And then I realized no one else was saying yes, so I just didn't follow through with it. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's I've done that. I've asked that question a few times, and I, I, I kind of always know the response I get because it's very rare that a lot of people will say yes. So, and, I know, and you are kind of aware of where you're performing, but I've, I've stopped trying to tailor my acts to the place I'm going because I did, this, I did when I was, when I first started that, do you know a guy called Jamali Maddox? No. Oh, I oh, mean, Jamali's amazing. He, he's done these fantastic comic. He was on Taskmaster, the last series. Um, he did a series for Vice called Hate Thy Neighbour, which was about uh, racism in the UK and America. And it's, it's fascinating. It's such a good sort of documentary slash comedy thing. It's, it was really influenced on the podcast, actually, in terms of incorporating comedy and documentary. But I did, I did a set with Jamali when I first started. And it was at this really rough East London comedy club. And like, the crowd were really leery, blah, blah, blah. And I was, and I was new and I was quite nervous. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do, I'll do my material about alcohol and I'll do some jokes about drugs because they look like they've all had drugs and blah, blah. <laughs> and I really, I was pandering. I was tailoring myself to them. And I did my set and it was fine, but it was like, whatever, boring. 
And then Jamali went on and Jamali just didn't give a shit. He didn't care. He was like, you've booked me, so I'm going to do me. And he went out and in front of like, you know, 200 pissheads, he spoke about racism in America and how, how you know, places with lower financial um, income tend to be more racist and why that is. And really interesting, heartfelt material about a topic that he gives a shit about. And just by virtue of him really caring about it, the audience cared about it as well. And from that moment on, I said to myself, I'm never pandering to an audience again. I'm never going to change what I do. I'm never going to go, oh, you might not like my stuff, so I'm going to do talk about something else. Fuck that. If you put me, I'm doing me. And if you don't like it, that's fine. But I, I can go home and say, I've, I've done my stuff. I've not wasted time. My personal reflection on that is when approaching podcast guests for this podcast, the mm. ones I'm mostly curious about turn out the best episodes, regardless of their status or name. Yeah, and yeah. then there's been other podcast guests who are really have loads of following but i've struggled to even write questions for them yeah and it's funny to hear that again reflect in comedy because as, as an audience people will hear you being intrigued and that is good to listen to like, like i had the same thing with my thing like when, with my podcast it's like if i was talking to someone that i, I wasn't really interested in like the producer would say it was like i can kind of tell you didn't give a shit about that. <laughs> and, and it's it's so audible and it's like it's it's um it's just much nicer to listen to someone who gives a shit about the conversation they're having. As, as I said earlier, comedy is a conversation as, as are these, but if it feels like you're listening to a conversation where both people are really into it and enjoying it, sounds great. Whereas if you listen to one where like one person is just doing their fucking PR speech that they've written and that they've done on every podcast they've done and the, the host is going, okay, yeah. Um, so what else? And it's, it, you know, it feels just icky and, and shit. And I think it, with comedy, it's like, it just it, someone could be doing a shit set, but if they look like they really enjoy it and they give a shit about what they're talking about, it's, it's still a spectacle. Yeah, reflecting on um, authenticity and bringing like your whole self to the set or to the podcast or whatever. I remember you did a scene or a joke or a gag uh, at in Soho where you spoke about how Russell Howard brings his parents onto a TV show. And um, Jack Whitehall brings his dad, who probably owns the train that they travelled on onto the show. I've often wanted to have my dad on this podcast because my dad um, is a Scots guard. He's an army veteran. Oh, wow. uh, served, served in the Falklands, guarded Buckingham Palace, um, has been to, as a guard, of uh, Princess Diana's wedding, um, saved life than a, lives in a London fire and got accommodation of bravery for it. But the only thing is, he's from a really tough part of Scotland with a really hardcore Scots slang accent. <laughs> and I feel like if I brought him to the podcast, it would be the only podcast where I try and subtitle an audio-only podcast to realise you can't do that. And it would be the only podcast that has an English-to-English -English, uh, <laughs> or transcript. So, like, how, like, as you progress, do you feel like you want to involve your family more in, in the stuff, the work that you do in terms of like the the sitcoms and stuff? I don't. I. It's funny you mentioned the, about your dad. I am. Um, you know, Kieran Tierney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did a podcast with some Scottish podcasters last summer, and I'm a big Arsenal fan. And um, like the whole of like Arsenal Twitter was sharing this podcast of Tierney, but where he's speaking to like other boys from Glasgow, no one knew what the fuck they were saying. And there's, there's like all these like avid Arsenal fans go, "What did he say? What's he said there? What, do, do, does he enjoy playing left back or does he want to be a left centre back? What's he talking about?" And like, it's all just like, and no one has a fucking clue what they're talking about. Um, 
in, t- in terms of my family, I, I, I've always sort of spoke about them quite a lot on stage, and you probably saw a rare set where I don't mention them at all. I, I used to talk about my dad an awful lot on stage. Um, and I, I was actually, I, I did a Radio 4 show last year called Class Act, and they, they were supposed to be involved in that. I was going to interview them during that, you know, at the points where I talk about them, I was going to interview them. Um, I've, I find that as I'm getting older, I look back on like person that I'm becoming and I'm becoming my dad. And I think we all do in certain ways. I think it's, I think it's interesting when, when, when you're like an adolescent, when, especially men, I think when we're in our sort of late teens, you have this kind of teenage rebellion where you go, Oh, I want to get as far away from my family as possible. I want to be a different person. Those guys are just fucking, you know, whereas I'm this and I'm so different to them. And, in, you know, and you, you, you do that in certain ways, whether it's in terms of your politics, in terms of, you know, I, I always thought of my dad as being quite unambitious because he'd never really done like a job that he gave a shit about. Whereas I look back now and I'm like, no, no, he did the most ambitious thing you can ever do, which is sacrifice your own interests to provide for a family. And I think that's the most admirable thing anyone can do. I didn't used to think like that. And, and in terms of like my dad's politics, like I used to be like, oh, he votes for this, he votes for Brexit. How, what a fucking idiot. I'm gonna go out on stage and be the most left-wing person I can be, probably as a way of being like, fuck you, dad. And now I'm getting older and I'm like, I kind of understand why you felt the way you did about those things. You, you, you know, you voted out of fear and because you, you care about your, your family and, and stuff. So that's, that's something that I'm really interested in incorporating into my set at the moment is talking about the fact that I, I used to have such a divisive idea of politics from, from a kind of left-wing perspective of like, I've, I think this is the right way of thinking and fuck anyone who thinks differently. And, and when I'm saying fuck anyone who thinks differently, I was very much kind of thinking about my family. Whereas now I, I'm really understanding them a lot more and trying, to, and trying to be much more sympathetic towards them. I got this, I got this um, guy emailed me a couple of weeks ago. He was like, I'm writing this sitcom. Would you want to be in it? It's about people who voted for Brexit and people who are quite nationalist and racist. And he was, he'd seen a set I'd done in 2017. And I used to do this whole set about St. George's Day, about a St. George's Day party my dad threw and about how stupid a nationalist it is. And I had to have this like long chat with this guy being like, I'm, I'm in no way a nationalist now. And I, I still very aggressively disagree with those politics. But I also don't believe in ridiculing people who do have those politics. Um, it's something that I think about and I care about an awful lot. I, last summer with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, this sounds like a really strange tangent when you've asked me if I'd involve my family in my comedy, but they're, they're at the heart of it. Like last summer with the Black Lives Matter movement, I, I went on a couple of those marches and it's a cause that I really believe in. And by the, by the end of those protests, there were people that are now known as statue defenders who went out and opposed the Black Lives Matter movement and who said, and, you, you know, we're going to protect our war statues and we're going to stop you guys from trashing them. And, you know, it became quite violent and divisive. And all the people on the other side of that, the people that were defending those statues, they all looked and sounded like my mates. They, they were young, working class lads and they were angry and they were unhappy. And correctly, they were hauled up on newspapers going, look at these fucking racists. Look at, look at these fucking thugs, hooligans. And I'm not... I'm not I'm no way want to disagree with the fact that they were wrong to do that. But I think it's important to try and think about why they were doing that and why working class people don't feel an affinity with other, um, other, other, other minority groups. 
why does so much hate get thrown sideways rather than upwards? Why, why do, why do, why, why do young working class people who are angry and feel fucked by a system, rather than looking up at the people oppressing them, they still vote for a Tory government, they still vote for, for <coughs> divisive right wing politics, and they throw their anger sideways at people from other countries who are struggling in the same way as them. That seems really mental to me. And we can spend days and months and years just calling them idiots, calling them racists and going, you know, what? oh, look at those fucking statue defenders defending their church, their Churchill statues and their war statues. What a load of fucking morons. Yeah, okay, it's, it's, it's not something I would do. But why not try and ask the question, why are they doing that? Why, why do they feel such an affinity with the military? So to me, it's because community has been completely destroyed amongst working class culture we speak about my mate leo why, why do so many people love those films those those green street films why do so many people still want to go out and and be part of a firm be part of a fucking a tribe of football fans who beat up people who dis it's because there's no community there's nothing else they feel a part of religion is gone you know there are no, there are no parts of stevenage where we all go and we all feel like the same thing it's it's all gone and all that's left is really divisive right-wing politics that's the only thing these people can feel a part of this isn't me sympathizing with the things they think this isn't me sympathizing with the racism or the xenophobia or the homophobia but it's me trying to understand why they do these things because if people like me don't try and understand why young working class people end up going and fighting black lives matter protesters they'll continue to do it forever because no one else is trying to listen to them and they're not trying to listen to anyone else. They're only going to listen to people like me and you who look like them and who sound like them because all they've got is newspapers and a political class who enjoy the fact that, that we're all divided. And so if me and you don't try and fight this shit, I had a mate last year who, my, one of my best friends came, who went on a Black Lives Matter march wearing a England shirt and at the time, I was like, mate, what the fuck are you doing? I was like, that's so stupid. Like, you look like one of the statue defenders. Black Lives Matter people are going to think that you're, that you're against them, that you're fighting them. And he said to me, he was like, no. He said, we have to reclaim that. He said, if we let football culture and England shirts be taken by the racists, then it's gone forever. And he also said, if... People who look like us don't see us supporting causes like Black Lives Matter and taking the knee. They'll never do it. Yeah. If all they see is racism, they will only ever imitate it. And it fucking falls on us to break that circle. And I'm sorry, that, that, that's a slight diversion from what we were talking about. But in terms of including my family in my comedy, that's what I really care about. I really care about representing working class people and showing them in a way where they're not being depicted by the media at the moment. Because if you open a newspaper now, you see thuggery and you see hooligans and you see idiots. And if you don't show that we can be stuff other than that, that cycle will never break. That's so powerful, mate. That last, <laughs> that, that, that last monologue is just uh, very, very moving, very powerful. I don't know if you feel the same. I don't know if you feel the same that, that, that people like me and you aren't shown in the media as being thoughtful or being caring or being compassionate. We're shown as thugs and we're shown as idiots. And what happens is people that we grew up around just imitate it. Yeah. This is why when I say about my mate Leo, this is why I'm so proud of what he does on social media because he takes a fucking stand and he goes, yeah, I'm bothered from Green Street, but I care about equality. I care about black people. I'm not a racist. And if you go to an England match acting like a fucking idiot, 
then fuck you, you're not one of my fans. And he gets thousands of people commenting on that post going, oh, fuck off, bother. You, you should be like us, England fans. It absolutely relies on us to stand up and to still wear the England shirt, still wear the Stone Island jumpers and to show that you don't have to fall into these divisive politics because a lot of people are making an awful lot of money out of the fact that that's all working class people want to be at the moment. Based on that, who are your role models in that space? It, it is family. Like people like my dad. My dad's a really like thoughtful, intelligent guy. He never went to university. He never, he never had the opportunity to research drugs and stuff like I have with those podcasts. But he, he's someone who forms his own opinions from, from reading and from listening to people. And my, yeah, my dad is my my girlfriend's. Like she's she's um, from the west of Ireland. Her family didn't have much money. She came to England at the age of eighteen so she could. Um, so she could do a nursing degree. She's so passionate about nursing and, and midwifery, and um, she she hadn't done for a little while. But when when we met, she would do voluntary work for refugees. Um, we nearly had to start a long distance relationship because she was so intent on going to Greece and working in the refugee camps in Greece. Um, she's completely driven by what she cares about and what she and people and looking after people and again doesn't come from a privileged background everything she has she's had to work for herself and at the same time she she educates herself on social causes just by listening and reading and as a, as a performer I've got loads of like role models but like in terms of like a, a person and, and the stuff I think and care about it's those people and like my mate Kane you know I, sh- I should say that he's a fucking idiot but that I've that was a small thing he said to me about the England shirt and especially over the last couple of weeks with all this football thuggery that's gone on with England and stuff, I've been thinking about that so much, how important it is to, to not, and this is something I probably did when I was younger, when I was in my early 20s, is try and distance myself from my background and not wear the England shirt and not wear the tracksuit. And, you know, if you're going to be left-wing and progressive, you have to look a certain way and talk a certain way. And actually, now I think it's so important to do the opposite. Yeah, I think it's so important that, you engulf this content in your podcast and in in your comedy and I did the same with my podcast or else like you said the narrative on white working class men is going to stay where Mm. it is and mate thanks so much for bringing that to life before we wrap up what's next for Jacob Holly (laughs) what's what's next um as I said I'm working to try and turn the podcast into like a tv thing to try and make a TV thing that kind of combines comedy and documentary to explore topics that I think are interesting and funny and important. Um, but my, I, like, I've, I've spent the last year, you know, writing scripts and podcasts and stuff. And the, the thing I'm just fucking loving at the moment is being back on stage. And so I'm going to write a new show that kind of incorporates a lot of the stuff that we've just spoken about for the last 15 minutes. <laughs> and that, that's a lot of what I'm working on at the moment. And yeah, the, I'll do the Edinburgh Fringe next year. And then I'll tour after that. And just, I just love being back on stage, man. And it's just, for, for me, it's like, I think the last year or so following the Black Lives Matter movement and, the, you know, the last few weeks of what's happened with the England fans and just the stuff we've spoken about for the last 15 minutes, I can't stop thinking about it. And it's something I really care about. And I think, I think it's a big thing that's not spoken about enough in this country is there's a real crisis with young white working class men. And I think I really just want to make comedy that young white working class men can listen to and appreciate and that might change the way they think about certain things. And 
I think I got into comedy because I really thought comedy can change the world and you can get people to listen to topics they wouldn't have done previously. And I think maybe in the last couple of years, I kind of gave up on that a little bit and thought, oh, no, it's just about having a laugh. But yeah, I don't know. There's something in the last few weeks that's really sort of ignited that within me again. I really want to do stuff that people care about and people listen to and that can make someone laugh, but also make someone kind of feel something. So, yeah, I'm just I'm working on that. I mean, that's so exciting. You really inspire me. And it's just a testament to you how personal you are to come on this show after receiving a voice note. Um, congratulations on your your gig. Happy birthday to your daughter when it comes. <laughs> Thanks, Mate, man. I'm so grateful you stopped by. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Really Whenever you're touring in Scotland, I'll... I'll, I'll yeah, yeah, I'll give you a shout. Absolutely. Mate, let's do it again sometime. Nice one, man. Absolutely. Absolutely.